0: to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, for our scripture reading. I think in the future, in the coming weeks, we'll have other people doing scripture reading as well, so you can share this blessing of reading scripture. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This is what the word of God says. praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved.
1: I'm so used to doing the presiding. Actually, we really enjoy that Joe's doing it. Um, It's good to see you. We have been in a series on gospel community and this is part eight of eight this is the final message on this particular series and you guys will get a break those of you who are regulars at this church will get a break from hearing me preach next week next week we joe's actually going to preach he'll, he'll be our first he'll be his first chance to deliver god's word in our, in our congregation and then actually the week after that i have asked our youth pastor frank to preach and that will be it'll be he's actually pretty good and um I think it'll be a blessing for you and for him to to give you to hear him and for him to get a chance to preach to an adult congregation. And so you get a little break from me for two weeks, and then um, after that, we're going to start a series on freedom. What is spiritual freedom? What is true freedom? So that's the the next series um, in starting three weeks from today. But today, let us get into this message, and today... We have been, we've had seven messages so far, and they have all focused from Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And it says here, in the early church, they devoted themselves to certain things. They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which it says that that is the gospel. And we had two messages, one about a centrality of the gospel in our church, and also what does it mean to have quiet time. Then we had two messages about how they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. We talked about meals and hospitality, and we also talked about the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread and the Lord's Supper. Then we had three messages on how they devote themselves to fellowship, and particularly uh, last week we talked about how their fellowship was one of radical generosity, as you see here in verses 45 and 46, how they're given their possessions, this incredible kind of fellowship that uh, I think we so long for but we don't see, and today I know there's so much that could be said about prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer, but we're just going to give one message on prayer and um, to close out the series. And I'll have, I have three headings for you today on prayer. Number one, what is the nature of prayer? What is the nature of prayer? Two, prayer in community, prayer as a form of communal love. And three, our motivation to pray, and that is, the high priesthood of Jesus. So let me talk number one. Let's get to number one. The nature of prayer. What exactly is a dictionary definition of prayer? And the reason I want us to talk at this very most basic level, what is prayer itself? I want to talk about this because I honestly think that we forget it. We forget it and we really don't practice it. Now, let me give you the dictionary definition. The dictionary definition is, or I won't give you the literal Webster, but to, at the very most basic definition is when a human being talks to God. That what everybody knows what it is? You sit. It is the real you, really in who you are, your real concerns, your real hopes, fears, hurts, shames all that you are, all your worries, all that's in your life, who you really are, and you let that known to a very real person who's listening. It is fundamentally, it is a relationship. Now, if you grew up here in the church, if you grew up in, I'm not just talking this church, if you grew up in the church, if you're a Christian, you know this. This is any five-year-old kid in the church knows that this is what you're supposed to do. Prayer is talking to God. And yet, why are you talking, giving us this very baby point, Pastor, to begin with? Because what I'd like to do is contrast it with the way people actually pray. Now, let me make two points about this. Number one, you understand that this conception of prayer, as I just said to you, that it's so completely basic and that... Virtually every Christian, or at least anyone who's been in the church, even if you're not a Christian, understands that this is the way the people who who believe in the Bible understand this prayer. This is not the way most people view prayer at all. That virtually every other religion, maybe Judaism's accepted, but virtually every other religion does not have this conception of prayer. Especially, And I'm not just talking about the religions that are on this planet today that people practice, Islam and Buddhism and so forth. But all, of, even all the other religions that have been throughout history, some you know many of which have died out. You know people don't believe in some of these religions anymore. But for the most part, people have a very different conception of God. If you go back to the ancient Greeks, people would have a view that my God, our God, is the God of the sea. Or if you go to Asia, people would have our God is the God of the mountain, or our God is the God of the trees. Or if you go to India, they would have uh, they have a kind of pantheistic conception, which is to say that God isn't a personal Being that you have a conversation with who actually listens to you and cares about you, but God is sort of like the force. He's like a life force or it is a life force that's in, in nature. And what, what is prayer then if he is, if God is a supernatural being or is a life force that doesn't actually listen to you? What's prayer then? Prayer then is not as we conceive it, as Christians conceive it. Prayer is something like this. Prayer is a form of religion. It's an activity. It's a technique. It's something that you must do to connect to the supernatural power. And if you do this right, you will please the supernatural power. And the supernatural power will do something good in your life. If you go to Asia today, I mean, uh, whether you're talking Japan or Korea or Thailand, you'll have all these temples, and some may be Buddhists, and some may be Shinto. some may have different types of conceptions. But you'll see, you'll see people who go there, and they pray. But they don't pray the way we pray, or it's the way Christians are called to pray. They may have a bead, and there are certain prayers that they have memorized, or that they know, and they know that if they say this series of words, they may say them out loud, or they may say, say them quietly, but they have to go through this series of words. This will please the supernatural power And then this will connect them. And effectively, prayer then is not a relationship at all. It's not a person speaking to a person and having a conversation, a dialogue. It is very different than that. What it is, it is a religious technique that if I do this thing that I can reach up and grasp something of the blessings of the supernatural and the supernatural come to my life. This is absolutely fundamental religion. Religion is man. Taking some form of techniques, if I do X, Y, Z, A, B, C, then these techniques will get me the blessing that I'm seeking for because we all know that life has hardships or at least there's a lot of luck. And sometimes when our luck goes bad, we would like some, some other force in the universe to be able to come and help us, but this is fundamentally what religion is. But This isn't so the way the Bible calls us to pray at all. This isn't the Bible's understanding of prayer. The Bible's understanding of prayer is deeply relational. The prayer itself is a relationship. That's what prayer is. Now, let me stop for a moment here. This is the way other religions handle prayer, a technique. But here's the second point I'd like to... Pastor, why are you telling us this? We're Christians, aren't we? Or at least a lot of us in this room are Christians. Maybe not every single person in this room... We're Christians, but in, and we don't function like that. Do we? Do you? Let me ask you a few questions. And some of these questions might be uncomfortable. might not be easy. And I was thinking about these questions throughout this week as I was sifting my own prayer life and the way I approach prayer because, you know, you shouldn't preach something that you don't yourself understand or practice or believe. But let me ask you this. Let me ask you this question. One how often do you pray? How often do you pray? Do you pray regularly? Do you pray every day? And I'm not talking about simply the ritual that you do before you eat. Lord, thank you for this food. That's how my my kids go. Dear Jesus, thank you for this food. I want to ask them to pray. And I would say, two thirds of the time, when when I ask one of our children to pray for the meal it's not really much of a prayer. It's almost more like a piece of rote religion, right? They're practicing being a good Christian. Are they really talking? Do they really think there's an actual being in the room who's walking with you all the time, who's listening to you, Just, just just as real as you're listening to me now? Just as when you sit down and have a meal or a conversation with someone, you talk, that person listens. Do they think that that's happening? Is that what my children think? Or they thinking, hmm, this is what Christians do. We're Christians, and you know, there's God, and we're supposed to thank Him, even though I don't really feel thankful. But, but so let's do this before, so I, I can dig in, right? And two thirds, maybe three quarters of the time, when we pray before a meal, it is a piece of habit. Now, now let me stop for a minute. It's I don't want to be too too much of a curmudgeon here. Uh, it's a good habit because we should practice thankfulness, but It's a habit. Probably more than half the time, when you pray for your meal, you're really not praying. Right? And that's just an example. So many times when we pray, Christians see it as, this is something you're supposed to do. Everybody knows you're supposed to pray if you're a Christian. I mean, how can you not pray? It just goes right up there. Go to church, and try not to lie and cheat, and all these other kinds of things. You're supposed to pray. And people feel that they need to work on their prayer life. And just by doing that, just the very way we we approach it and say these things, it immediately conjures up religion. It conjures up, it's something that I have to do. I have to achieve this. It's some technique. I'm doing it the wrong way. Let me ask you, how do you pray? Hmm? What do you pray for? Do You typically only send to ask for something when life isn't going good, and then you, oh, God, help me with this. I need this. In that case, that's a prayer. I'd say that's a prayer, and there's nothing wrong with asking something for God when you need it, because God is all providing, and we are full of need, right? There's nothing wrong with supplication, as the Bible calls it. But is is that the only way you pray? Imagine... If you had a friend, and this is what the, what the Bible says is, the Bible says God is your father, God is your friend. He's with you all the time. There's never a time he's not present. He sees you, knows every hair on your head, knows every need. He has, he has his life, you know, your life is like a stitching that he's put together. He knows you so deeply, intimately, he's walking with you all the time. And yet, imagine if you had a friend, you're with them all the time, and the only time you ever said something to them was, hey, can you get me that sandwich? Hey, can I get some money? Hey, um, you have some powers. I'm really sick. Would you fix it? Or even, or, hey, my, my son is really sick. But in between, there's silence. You never say anything to this person. So let's say something about how you think about prayer. Let me ask you a different question. How do you pray? What do you say? I often think the way we approach prayer is the way like a 10th grader writes a paper for English class. Here's what I mean. You write an essay, or maybe a 12th grader writing an essay for college. You know, you have to write these, write these, these, I I, I can't imagine writing all these essays, reading all these essays being, I can imagine if you were a college admissions officer, can you imagine reading all these stupid essays? (laughs) That That part must stink. It's like, probably 19 out of 20 essays are terrible. Why? What makes them terrible? Do you realize actually what the college admissions person actually wants? Or what, the, what the, your 10th grade teacher, English teacher actually wants? What they actually want is this. They want you to actually have an opinion, which is really your opinion. It's really personal to the way you see the world. And you to honestly, clearly, and hopefully articulately, so you know, without spelling errors write down on the paper what's really coming to you what's really in you and put that down and then convey that to the teacher that's what the teacher actually wants on the paper but what do we actually do what does a typical 10th grader or a 12th grader apply to college actually do what they do is they do this they go hmm. if i write these right sentences then the teacher will like it <laughs> and then and maybe i'll get an a so what they don't do is actually say what they really think. What they're only trying to do is to figure out how to get an A. What they're, in other words, it's a technique. It's a, just give me the hoop. If I jump through the hoop, then good things will happen on the other side of the hoop, right? That's religion. I know it's not religion in class, but when you do that with God, that's religion. Isn't this what we do? As soon as you sit down, you start thinking about, oh, I'm going to pray, oh, I don't know what to say. So you start thinking about, what is the right thing to say? <laughs> how 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 can I say? It? And this, this is not to say that there are some prayers that are like stupid, I mean like bad. You can say, God, you know, let me win the lottery tomorrow because it would just be really good. That And if you could say that honestly, that would be a genuine prayer. But also be kind of a dumb prayer, too. We, we know that there are some things that are kind of silly because when you're talking to God, you know, it, you, you don't just go around and just put your, the depth of your shallowness before Him. But at the same time, as soon as we do this, we go into technique and performance mode. It's no longer prayer in a very real way. It isn't. It's religion, it's technique. Let me say one more thing before we go on to part two. You know, um, the the previous senior pastor here, Pastor Lee, he, he often talked about prayer and our, st- um, our prayer or when the pastoral staff would get together. And he would urge us to have a very serious prayer life. And he would say things like, if you don't really pray before God, you're not going to make it in ministry because you're just going to burn out because you won't be connected to God. And he'd it, say things that are kind of um, challenging. He's like, you know, if you don't pray for at least 30 minutes, you're probably not praying. (laughs) And I'm sitting there going, and I'm not trying to make you feel guilty here, but listen, what does he mean by that? He's not talking about a length of time. He's not saying that you're holier if you pray for an hour versus only if you pray for five minutes. What he means is something like this. When you first sit down, you're not even really praying at all. You're just... You start going into 10th grade paper mode. Oh, I'm supposed to do this. Or I'm supposed to ask for this. Uh, how, can get, how can I get an A? You go into religion. Or, or I'm supposed to pray. So, you know, okay, I'll, I'll do this for like two or three minutes. And then I'll, I've done my religion for the day. What hits your mind when you first start to pray is all the religion, all the noise. But are you really talking to God? That's what he's saying. Are you really sitting and meeting God? I've thought about that long and hard, and I think he's so right. And I'm not trying to say, hey, you better pray for at least 30 minutes. Uh, one of the nice things about being a pastor is you get paid to connect to God. <laughs> and so you get time to sit and just pray. You guys realize that one of the th- things you guys are doing is praying me, uh, paying me to pray. It's really interesting. Um, but you really want me to have a connection to God so that I can t- show you who God is. I can point to him, and then you can have a connection to God. But oftentimes when I pray, I don't think about all the things I have to say or even the things that are in my heart. Sometimes I just sit there and I get quiet. And I'll say something like this. I don't even know what to say, God. I can't even put all my fears and worries into words. I'm just going to let all my crud rise up. Here, have it. (laughs) And I'll let all my fears and all my sins and all my shame and all the things I'm worried about, sometimes for me and sometimes for others, sometimes I'll just say, I'm thinking about, I'm praying for my child, and I'll just go, Hudson. (laughs) And I'll, I'll feel and put every fear and nervousness I have and put it before God, and just let him just be there with me. You know that's prayer. It's a relationship, that's what it is. That's prayer. That's real prayer. You could be clumsy, you're not know to say anything, but it's the real you meeting the real God. That's prayer. A lot of times, um, I pray in the car, I turn off the radio, I turn off my podcast. And I'm just weary or I'm just nervous. And I just start talking out loud. I talk out loud. I don't even like pray silently. I just God, this is not, this is hard. I'm going through something hard. This is what's hard. Let's go to part number two. Prayer as a form of communal love. Now, um, you know what prayer is In, in many ways If you often think, what we often tend to think is that prayer is this thing that we do. We're either doing it silently or we're doing it It's a form of religion. But it doesn't really accomplish anything. It's kind of, you know, it's this thing that we do. If you really want to accomplish, then you go out and you have to become a doer. Outside, then you go out and do the thing that you ask for. That's the stuff that really gets stuff done. But prayer, is that really an action? But if you think like this, if you think like this, fundamentally, you don't have faith. You don't believe what prayer is in the first place. If you think this isn't really accomplishing something, but if you go out and do something, that accomplishes something, then you're saying that prayer isn't really talking to God. Prayer is a technique. technique doesn't get much done. I find it very interesting today, especially after 9-11, you often hear people talking about our prayers and our hopes go with you. And you see this on TV, And especially a lot of secular people are saying this thing. And I'm thinking, what do they mean when they say that? Our prayers and our hopes go with you. And some of them don't even believe in God when they say that. What what they're saying is our prayers, when when they don't believe in God, but they talk about their prayers, what they mean is their good intentions. They have hopes, but they're just hopes. But a Christian, if you have faith, you believe... You believe the very reality is that you're talking to God, and if you're talking to God, God does things. Indeed, the Bible teaches very much so that unless His people ask, God doesn't do certain things. Look, the Bible's clear God has a general love and care for the world, all of His creation. He knows that so, down to the finest details. He has a general care for the world. And we tend to think, well, God has a plan. If he's going to do this plan, he's going to just do it however and however he wants to do it. We can't affect it. That's wrong. Right? God absolutely has a plan and a will that he's going to sovereignly, that he's predestined down, he's going to run this. But this is, it's a crazy mystery to this. God doesn't just have general love. God has very specific and particular love for specific individuals. And God waits. And until you pray and ask, God doesn't go forward. Things, certain things don't happen. Have, this is the way the Bible teaches it, and I absolutely believe in, in my own personal experience that certain things don't happen until you ask. And here's how this I, I imagine it like this. My son. Let's say my son comes to me, and I try to like my son, my my, my, my daughters, I constantly try to engage them in conversation. And we're in the car, I'll ask them a question. And they give me these one-word answers. I'm like, oh, that was a great, great answer there. My son, especially. How was our baseball practice? Fine. <laughs> it was good. right? Did you enjoy Korean school yesterday? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's kind of lame. Um, my youngest, Elizabeth, if you ask her a question... You you can't shut her up. She starts yapping. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, this is enough of this conversation, <laughs> and then I have to like shut that conversation down. She's a little different, all right? Um I I she'll probably have a good prayer life one day, I, I imagine, right? Because if she like this with, with everybody, she thinks her dad listens to her all the time. I think it's a very easy concept to her that God listens. And she'll probably start yapping. But notice if I ask something of my son, and what if he says I'm worried about my so-and-so friend, you all of a sudden realize now, I love my son. I love everything that's in his life, and I care about everything that's in his life. It's just that you know I'm a limited being, so I I don't have omniscience and no. But when he tells me, he tells me "I, I care about this friend or I'm worried about our baseball team or something like this, guess what? All of a sudden, now I worry about it too. I care about it. He tells me, and now, and if he tells, and if he tells his sisters, and he tells my wife, all of a sudden now, what is now his concern becomes a family concern, is it not? And he can go do something for his team or his teammates on his baseball. Let's say he's worried about his baseball team, but then, but then I'll go. Hey, I can contribute too, and we'll go in, and then we'll, our whole family will come to root. And we'll come in and we'll do the snacks. There's all kinds of things to volunteer for a little eating. It's strange, right? Um, but all of a sudden, it becomes a family business. And the most important person, of course, is, is the father coming in, bringing his resources. Prayer, if you really understand this, is a conversation. It's an interfamily family conversation. And prayer, if you pray for your brothers and sisters, if you pray for someone else, you are asking God, who is the most omniscient, omnipotent being, who literally cares for you. I don't think he listens to everybody. God does not listen to the prayer of unbelievers. They may pray until they call out to him. He may not hear them. Certainly, they they pray. I just told you, they don't pray to him. He doesn't listen to those prayers until they pray to him. But he will listen to you if you're his child. And if you will intercede and pray on behalf of someone else, that is very much, you are very much doing an act. You are accomplishing something. That is love itself. For the Christianity is a world of love. It is God pouring out his love upon you like a waterfall. And we're, we're like a cup. My picture, I often think of this. We're like a cup. And if Waterfall comes in, it'll pop in out of you, and it'll overflow out of the cup and hit and everything that's around that cup. And what Christianity ultimately is, is a profound ocean of love coming down through Jesus Christ, through his redemptive work, through his grace, and it pours in on us and it pours out of us, and, it, and then it touches all upon other words, and you know one of the most powerful, if not, if one of, if not the most powerful means of that ocean of love to hit other people. It's prayer. It's prayer. Prayer is loving. So let me push back. Prayer is religion. Prayer is performance. Prayer is the right thing to say. Please throw that away. And start thinking prayer is talking to God. Prayer is me knitting myself to my family. Prayer is love itself. And if that's the case, of course, it's absolutely fundamental to gospel community. It's absolutely fundamental to this early church life. That's why they devoted themselves. They would devote themselves to this. Now, let's go to part number three. Okay. pastor, still not easy. How do we do it? I mean, help us. We need some motivation, something that will help us. And let me share with you something that the scriptures teach you that the gospel offers you. You know, sometimes it's still not easy to pray to somebody who's invisible, right? Or sometimes he seems kind of silent. It's not easy sometimes to have a conversation with my son when he gives me one-word answers. Like, guys are kind of like that. Um, And sometimes God could be kind of quiet. He doesn't respond back. or He doesn't answer very quickly, does he? And sometimes maybe the reason you don't converse with God, you don't pray very much, is because you don't actually expect Him to respond. You don't actually expect Him to converse the conversation. You know, it's only a conversation when two two parties talk. But God does converse. He does converse. He does does come back. But sometimes He's quiet. Sometimes God is quiet and He feels far away from you because you have run away from Him and you're not close to Him. But sometimes He's close. He's just being quiet. (laughs) quiet. And you just... You're like, it's not easy sometimes to have a conversation. And so, pastor, come on, help help us on the praying part. Well, let me share with you something that the gospel teaches. It says to us in the Bible, Jesus died. He lived the life we were supposed to live. And so we get His righteousness in all our unrighteousness. He died the death we deserve to die. And so we know we're wicked... We know we've fallen short. And on the cross, Jesus has taken away all our condemnation. And then He was risen to give us a new life. This is the, all the gospel teaches. So, it's part of the gospel. Live the life we should have lived. Die the death we should have died. To give us a new life, this resurrection life. And He's pouring this out in us. We're not just talking about when you get to heaven. He wants to give us resurrection life and taste it now. And yet, with all these, there's, the, the gospel has so many, a multiform form of benefits. You also know that the Bible teaches us that Christ, he's not just our lamb. He's not just the Savior. That The Bible teaches us that he is our high priest. Let me, in Hebrews chapter 4, it says this. Since then, we have a great high priest. Who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You get it? God is not just up there, but he's close. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And here's the verse, listen, verse 16. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. What is that? With confidence, draw near to the throne. You know what that is? That's prayer. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. What does it mean to go to the throne of grace with confidence? It's prayer. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What's the high priest? In the, old, in the olden days, in ancient days, there'd be the temple. And at the center is where God's very presence would be, the throne of grace. That's the throne. And nobody could go there. And everybody knew they were unworthy to go there, which is why we practice religion. Religion is the default of the human mind. We just know that we're not, we're not worthy to ask of things and to receive it, which is why we feel that we have to perform but they knew that back then. We forget today in our very secular kind of lost world, but they knew that. And what they knew was that someone had to go there and intercede, someone who was worthy to intercede, who could take you before the throne of God, and you would not only be safe, you would be received with open arms with love and pleasure. And God's greatness would come. Great mercy and mercy and grace would flow out of the throne. Upon all those who would come and approach. But it says here in the Bible, Jesus is not just the Lamb who died to take away our sin, He is the high priest now. That if you have the gospel, that Jesus, through His grace, do you realize that He is praying for you now? That Jesus stands before the throne for you now? That when you pray and you don't even know what to say, and that you babble or you pray badly, that your bad and selfish prayers or your weakness would go forth and all your sins would dissipate on the cross by his blood, and a high priest who is the lamb would take your prayers and take it straight to God. Your prayers can never not reach God because Jesus, the high priest, will always be worthy to take it to God. So please pray. Now, I'd like to close this message with a story. (laughs) As you guys know, as many times I like to tell stories. Because we need to see this. We need to see this in the fabric of our life. To see how it's very real. It's not just something olden days that's written in the Bible in a holy book. But it's very real, very practical. God doing this now. And um, throughout this week, you know, in our uh, quiet times and in our community group, we've been talking about prayer and, and, and I hope that uh, the community groups will discuss that. We had a pretty rich discussion on Friday night in our community group. And um, and I thought a lot about it this week, about how God has uh, reached me through prayer and especially for the prayers of others for me. And, um, you know, we talked a little bit. I shared a little bit about this. And I thought I'd like to share with you a very personal story from my own life. Um, some, a few of you know about the, the these events that have occurred to me and how prayers reach me but um, a number of you or especially who are new to the church don't know and let me share with you a little bit about this about more than 10 years ago about, i guess it's 12 years ago now in uh, the fall of 1999 um, i got extremely sick uh, i had a headache i had it seemed like a fever i was throwing up it seemed like flu symptoms and usually when I get these flu symptoms, what I do is I pop some Tylenol and I go to sleep. And if I sleep for about two days, usually I'm good to go. But after two days, I wasn't getting better. After three days, after a week, I'm throwing up all the time. We'd actually go. We went to the emergency room. The doctors actually said, oh, you have the flu. They would give me an IV and I'd go home. And it still, I still wasn't getting better. And I was dizzy. And I finally... My mom got the idea. We went to the my my primary care. I I was a I was a healthy, strapping young man. I know you're like, hey, pastor, you still look like a strapping young man, but it's not true. (laughs) But back then, I actually was. I was actually healthy, strong, 28 year old young man. And I started. And my my I had never actually I you know I was one of those. I had an HMO. You know, you sign up for an HMO. I'm one of those guys that if I don't need to see the doctor, I don't bother. I had never seen my doctor. I had literally never met my doctor until this. I showed up. My doctor was like, wow, this guy is in bad shape. And my mom asked my doctor, he's dizzy. Would you have him have a CT scan? She said, okay. So we go over to Good Samaritan Hospital. So this is just right here in San Jose at a good Samaritan hospital, and I was this was the first time many years ago I used to be the pastor here at this church, and then I left for to do a doctoral study on the East Coast and have only recently come back. So this was many years in this very church. And we were in a different building on the other side of town, but it was this church. The radiologist took one look at the skin and went, Whoa, <laughs> uh, you need to check in today. And if you ever you ever seen those pictures of brains, you know, the normal brain has a certain kind of a certain shape, right? If you looked at the scan of my CT back then, you would see like these dents. Because what I had was what was called hydrocephalus. And hydrocephalus means you have, you have a, this basically it's water fluid. They call it cerebrospinal fluid in your brain. And there's a certain balance. But when there's too much, it starts to literally press down and put pressure and put dents into your brain. And who knew that the, 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 the symptoms are you throw up. And you, get, and you get dizzy. It's weird. Right? Those are the symptoms. They look like the flu. And, and we apparently had some incompetent emergency room doctors. And I won't say what hospital. And, but the radiologist here goes. Now, immediately I had three doctors talk to me. I still remember two of them were these smart Indian guys. One of them was a brilliant guy. I still remember his name was Sachdev. He was a neurologist. The other guy was an internal medical doctor whose subspecialty was neurology. And the other guy was a neurosurgeon he was a Caucasian guy his name is Mark Easton Sachdev has asked I me mean, with all these questions he's like did you ever have meningitis did you ever hit your head did you have a concussion got into a car accident I'm like no 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 because he just can't believe that this 28 year old guy is in here because usually you get this when you're either a baby when you typically have meningitis or you're, you're an old man these are the people who get hydrocephalus but not a 28 year old healthy guy and I said, no, no, no. So it's very mysterious how I got this. Dr. Eastham, this neurosurgeon, said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do this thing called a shunt operation. A shunt is literally a plastic tube. It, has a, it may have a little pump on it to, you know, to kind of regulate, but basically it's a tube, and it's permanent. And I have it. I still have this in my. you know, If you want, you can come up, I'll show, you, show it to you, right? It's, it's in me. And he goes, here's what we do I'll drill a hole a little hole into your skull and make an incision here at your neck and right here in your stomach and I'm gonna put a tube into you and um, and the water will drain off and you'll get better. And I and I remember I still remember this, you know, I had a throbbing headache and I couldn't see because you get double vision and I was I was dizzy and I was and at that time I remember thinking, that's how they fix it? I thought they had like, you know, with modern medicine they would have some kind of fancy technique, give me certain special pills and all the water or something. Instead, what they do is they, they take a drill and they stick a tube in it and then the water just drains off and that's how they fix you. <laughs> and I was like, and so then he goes, so, so, Sussong Park, do you want this? And I go, uh, yes. <laughs> Normally, you're in. It's a 30-minute procedure. goes, don't worry, I do this all the time. 30 minutes, you'll be out. Less than a week later, you're out. You have these staples in your head. And he goes, you get, you're get, out, and then a week later, they, they take the staples out, and you and you're just go back to normal life. That didn't happen for me. I left, then I kept throwing up. Long story short, I had a complication. One of the shunts, the shunt got infected. That's really bad. You don't want an infection in a tube that's in your brain, on your brain. Right? I got, I had to go into the ICU, Uh I almost died during that period. It was very serious. This operation, this shunt operation, I have had four times. They drilled me here, then they drilled me here, then they drilled me here. So they did here, then they put it on this side, then they put it on this side, then they put it on side. I think it's finally on this side, right? I've had this operation four times. And, um, and it was a, a weird experience, the whole thing. Right? When, you, you, when you have all this stress on your brain, things are happening to you like Like, you can't talk. There are periods you couldn't talk. There was a period I couldn't walk. There was a period I couldn't swallow. It's very weird. When you're eating lunch this afternoon, try this. Take a bite. Actually, think about it. Nobody ever thinks about it, but you chew, 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 and then swallow. It just goes down, right? You don't think about when you're going to swallow. When you're ready, it just goes down. Well, I've actually had the experience of chewing, chewing, chewing. I'm feeling everything. I'm actually thinking about chewing, and then I don't know how to do the next part. Like The food would literally get stuck in my mouth because I didn't know how to put it down, and then I'd have to spit it out. And so what they would do is they would give you this thing called an NG tube, so you have a tube in your head, and you have this other thing called an NG tube, where an NG tube is a nasal gastrointestinal tube, and they shove a tube up your nose down into your stomach, and then they kind of put these tubes of food into your thing, and it goes up through your nose, and down. that's how they fed me for a while. And that becomes a hassle. My ordeal was so long. I was in the hospital from December of 99 through February of 2000, a good three months, and then I still had rehab after that. For months after that, i was still going to rehab. This uh, being, being fed through the nose is lame, so the doctor said, why don't you just get a G-tube? That's just a gastro tube which is another whole operation itself, where they give you an incision, they open you up down here, they do an incision into your stomach, and I still have the dimple, right? And a tube, you literally have a tube, a plastic tube coming out of you, and then your, my wife would open up a little cap and then put this like, food tube, and I would say, I'm hungry, and she would like, it's like a tube, she'd have to like pump this food in, and it would go into me, and I'd go, thanks dear, I'm not hungry anymore. <laughs> That's the way I was fed for a while. Now, um, I got better, as you can see, right? but i 'd like to tell you two quick incidents about this when I really knew God was hearing people 's prayers when I was going through this, our church this church the whole church went to prayer for me. People would wake up on the, and every morning the, the, there's we have dawn prayer service, and people one of the prayer requests was pray for our young pastor he 's dying right? and the, are the English ministers praying for me? The youth group, we, it was funny, uh, One of, a couple of the people that I pastor now, they were in youth group in this church at this time, and I thought, how strange, if they didn't pray for me back then, I probably would have died, and I wouldn't be their pastor today. But they, would, they had a fasting prayer chain, and the youth group would take turns praying for me. And then my father is, uh, is an elder at Emmanuel Church, which is one of the largest Korean churches in San Jose. So there's like a thousand people in that church, a thousand people there praying for me. And word got out that there's this EM pastor in San Jose at this Korean church and a whole network of prayer. It was incredible. There's probably literally thousands of people praying for me. It's crazy when you think about it. Right? And I knew that back then, that lots of people were praying for me. But there are two times when I really knew. I mean, I really knew. Um, I was in the ICU, as I, as I told you and hospitals make mistakes lots of people die i don't know if you know this people die because it's weird you go to the hospital to get your life saved but then they do a procedure which supposedly saves your life and then they screw up and then you die and my parents would show up and the nurses and i'm not not trying to knock nurses at all but because nurses they they're the ones that care for you the doctors do the procedures They, they see you for five minutes but The nurses are the ones who love you, and and they they, they take you to hell. So I love nurses. To this day, I love nurses. But if you get a bad nurse, if you get an incompetent nurse, you could quite literally die, especially if you're in in the ICU. And um, there was one night when the doctor prescribed to me a medication which it turned out I was allergic to. And that was a... One of the most harrowing and horrible nights of my life. I had muscle cramps, and it was weird. I felt it. it felt crazy. Right? I, that was probably the closest I could ever imagine what it feels like to take a bad drugs. You know, people want to go on a crazy bad drug trip, and I was like, Lord, oh! I was crying out that night. And it was tremendously powerful to know that the Lord was there. And a thousand people would pray, and I was protected that night, even though the the hospital screwed up. <laughs> One other incident. This actually goes with our, our praise leader, John Harr. He's actually an old dear friend of mine. And he visited me in the hospital. This was like much later when I was like, you know, I, I was kind of out of the woods. I wasn't gonna die. <laughs> right? um, but I was going through a period where I was going in and out when I could talk. Actually, most of the time I couldn't talk. And um, I would spend my days reading magazines. I I was was fully lucid in my mind. I was very tired because, I mean, imagine being fed liquid food into your stomach. You're not going to give you very much energy. And I would read magazines. I'd read. My friends would bring me Forbes and Business Week, and I would read it like this. And after reading it a couple hours I get tired and I conk out. So I was completely lucid. I learned a lot about business during that period. Actually, it's kind of funny. Um, But John came to visit me one day, and. All of that day, I couldn't talk. You know, people would come visit. My wife would be there around the clock. My mom would sometimes come around. She'd be there for eight hours, and my brother would be there for eight hours, and my mom would be there. Like People would come around the clock, and I couldn't talk. And then John came, and for whatever reason, all of a sudden, normally I'm totally in my mind. I'm like, it's, it's a very weird thing to open your mouth and not be able to say what's in your, in your head. But when John came, we had about a, he was there for about forty minutes, and we had this perfectly lucid conversation, just like my old buddy and I we always did. right It was really weird. and then he left, and then my wife came, and then it was blockage again. <laughs> it was weird <laughs> and and I remember thinking about that for a long time. I was like, that was so weird. How did that happen? And it just dawned on me God just gave that to me, right? For whatever reason, God said, knew that I needed to have a conversation with my buddy. and he, We needed this exchange, and he just gave it to me. So many people prayed to make profound impact. I know it's a little strange to think that Susan you know, can't talk because you, know, you generally can't get me to shut up, right? But there was that period, and um, people... Brothers and sisters, please pray. Go to God. Don't take him. Don't give me your religion or your performance. Go to him. He's waiting for you. He's longing for you. He loves having conversation with you. He loves hearing your your weaknesses and your hurts, your fears, your laughter, your joys. He wants to hear everything, and tell him your whole life. Let him. Your love, his love, be in in your brothers and sisters and let the church and your other brothers and sisters and their feet, let them be your life and watch God do this stuff. And when you pray, so many people will be blessed if you pray for them, please. Jesus intercedes for you. There's no prayer that you lift up that God will not hear since Jesus prays for you. I'm, I'm a walking blessing. There'll be so many people, me and more. We're praying for Timothy's song, this baby. This baby. I, I think this baby's going to make it. Because we're going to pray for him. Please pray. Let's pray. Let's go to the Lord's table. <coughs> and know that the Lord intercedes for us. Let's pray. Jesus, our high priest father who loves us and yet we're still so afraid to go to that throne of grace we're still showing up with all our works righteousness and our performance and our religion and yet you have washed us with your blood and you intercede for us even now and when we pray and stumble and bumble you take those prayers and make them pure and beautiful and take them to the father Make this a praying church, real prayer, not religious church, but a praying church. Make this a true, rich an ocean of God's love, a true, powerful gospel community where prayer is in the very fabric of all that we do, Lord God. And your power is ever so evident, because there's people praying all the time, for each other, for one another asking that you would be so palpable, not just for people who are sick and dying physically, but people who are sick and dying spiritually, lost and blind and prideful and hard-hearted and unbelieving. Would you break through and do miraculous things like you did to let me talk to my buddy John, Lord? And you would do this and just be the regular things of our life. And we would just, as the early church, we would be in awe of you, Lord. We'd be in awe of you. As we go to your table now, may we eat of your intercession. Make us a praying people. In Jesus' name. Amen.